Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian with Rare Petro, bringing you another episode of Monday Madness on March 3rd, 2023. This is the first episode of March, and I just can't quite believe it. Seems not that long ago we were stepping into the new year, but already we are staring down the barrel of Q2. How have you spent the year so far? Have you used your time wisely? Have you learned a lot? If not, consider subscribing to the Rare Petro Podcast, or just give our website a quick look. Our Nick Turns are working hard to churn out some excellent content between their studies. I'm always making weekly appearances over the air, and Anthony helped wrap up the newest spicy dialogue in the wacky world of energy. It's a great way to stay up to date on energy news and any groundbreaking developments in that space. Go ahead and frack that follow button and drop Rare Petro into your favorite search engine to get started. But that's enough self-plugging. I think it's about time we get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast, and we will get it started with commodity prices. Surprisingly, WTI is on the top side of $80, but I don't think that will be true for very much longer. It opened this morning at 79, took a brief little dollar dip, and spiked up to 80.33. It's been slowly deflating since, and I believe probably back to $78, $79 by the end of the day. This is not to say that the price action has not been interesting. Last week, we started at 76 and worked steadily up to 78 by the end of Friday before there was a brief jump to almost $80. In recent weeks, we have usually seen this followed by a massive decline on Monday morning, not another test at the same ceiling. I know it's still early, but go ahead and keep an eye on WTI price by the close of the day because we might be very close to bursting through this ceiling. Brent maintains almost identical price action, and I say almost identical because it sits in the high $85 range. For those astute listeners out there, you may recognize that this means the spread between WTI and Brent has narrowed from $7 to $5, or 5.5 more accurately. This may not sound like much, but we have consistently had $6.5 to $7 spreads so far this year. Pairing this with what we know about WTI's movement leads me to believe technical factors in the supply-demand market may finally be coming into play. This could be the most interesting oil price week we have witnessed so far this year. Fingers crossed. Oh, I almost forgot. Natural gas prices are exhibiting the same volatility we have come to know and love. Last week, it climbed a bit before spiking on Friday afternoon to tickle the $3 point before crashing right back down. It has since been trending downward and currently sits at 2573 Not too much crazy going on here, as most folks believe natural gas will likely sit there for the next three seasons, but I personally believe commodity markets are so tight that increased export capacity could dramatically shift that normal territory. Next, of course, is the rig count. As you may have predicted, we continue to decline as the U.S. total falls 4 to 749. This is only 99 more rigs than we had this time last year, and the first time we have seen a double-digit year-over-year number since the explosion of added rigs that came after the fall of 2020. I mean, since then, it was really triple-digit changes in a very short matter of time for that year-over-year total. Not only is that under 100, but we've shown a steady multi-month plateau insinuating that a boom of rigs is nowhere near. The Permian took the brunt of the blow at a basin level with a four-rig decrease. Otherwise, the Mississippian in Haynesville also lost one. It's not all bad news because the can of Woodford was able to add one. State by state, Wyoming bears the only positive number with two new rigs. Oklahoma lost one, Louisiana two, and Texas four. To add a little salt in the wound, we also have the Gulf of Mexico underperforming with a lost rig. The emphasis of rig change is switching from oil to gas. 
Certainly not the best report we visited this year, but also not the worst. Just seems like that sweet spot for rigs right now is between 730 and 760 rigs. Lastly, of course, is Nick Fernhout's excellent inventory report. He pulls some incredible data and visual resources and posts them weekly to rarepetro.com. If you missed last week's cocktail and data, here it is condensed down as much as I can. The EIA's conservative forecast was just under half a million barrels, while they reported an actual value of 1.165 million barrels. Not quite the 8 or so million Nick had predicted last week. The API forecasted a similar number, however reported a much larger build of over 6 million barrels. Not exactly sure what the reason is behind the discrepancy this week, but most people tend to lean towards the EIA for accuracy anyways. It seems that there's somewhat of a pattern. Small build, small build, very large build, medium build, small build, you get it, you repeat it. If the pattern holds for another week, we may see a 4 to 5 million barrel build. Gasoline stocks drop for a consecutive week as gasoline prices edge lower. We have lots of oil here in the US, as evidenced by the 10 straight weeks of builds. It's just a question of whether or not that oil can be refined at a reasonable rate. Gas has become 2 cents cheaper this week. Yay. And there's a nearly $2 spread between gasoline in Hawaii, Alaska, California, and Texas, Missouri, Mississippi. In the next few weeks, we may begin to see a slight increase in gas prices as the summer blend is rolled out across the country, which is more expensive than the winter blend. Diesel dropped 7 cents this week, while diesel stock rose ever so slightly. Propane propylene stocks are just riding the wave. A new section of the report... Nick thought some insight into the U.S. oil imports and exports would be a good thing to cover, so here's a first take of presenting that data to you. First, the big picture. Zooming in on just this week, while net crude imports and exports are positive, other petroleum product exports heavily outweigh the imports this week, bringing that net import to exports into negative territory. Most of the exports in order of greatest to least were destined for Mexico, Canada, and the Netherlands. Those were the top three. The most imports were from Canada, Mexico, and Saudi Arabia, with the lion's share coming from Canada. Thanks again, Nick, for another great inventory report. I, for one, am excited that he is also looking at that import-export data. That should be a fun one to watch through these coming months. Our story for today actually comes from Anthony. He shared this article with the group that analyzes how the Russian-Ukraine conflict has altered trade patterns for seaborne crude. As you know, Europe has decided it would be consuming as little Russian oil as possible. This has led to increased export demand from the U.S. Before the war, these would be transported over the pond by Aframaxes, with a capacity of 750,000 barrels, and Suezmaxes, with a capacity of 1 million barrels. Exports to Asia were sent aboard supertankers, technically known as VLCCs, very large crude containers, with a capacity of 2 million barrels, that's two times the Suezmaxes. With so much demand now being directed towards Europe, the incentive structure is starting to become challenged. According to ship brokerage data, there are around 108 VLCCs trading west of the Suez, with more arriving every day. This leads to the Atlantic crude tanker market becoming increasingly competitive. It is possible that we could soon see a record number of VLCCs transporting crude from the US to Europe. I don't know about you, but nothing about that situation seems to scream healthy fundamentals to me, especially in the case of Europe. For those of you concerned with the smaller Aframax and Swayzmax ships, don't be. 
this peculiar structure has benefited the smaller ships as well. In a situation where you may have had several Aframaxes transporting oil to a destination, you may now only have two VLCCs carrying the load the bulk of the way and offloading onto smaller Aframaxes and Swayzmaxes. It costs around $60,000 per day to operate a VLCC, and because of these new supply and influences, $66,000 to operate a Swayzmax. That is a 10% larger cost to operate a ship with half the carrying capacity. All of those VLCCs we just mentioned are now competing for business with the smaller ships because they're just too damn big to get into these oil ports, so maybe not so much a competition. At that point, the Aframaxes and Swayzmaxes complete the last legs of the journey and then offload to ports. This has effectively transformed VLCCs into high-demand shuttles, which is very strange considering only two years ago they were used for some of the cheapest offshore storage. Some VLCC owners expressed disappointment in the lack of increased activity between the U.S. and China. Sure, Europe's importing a lot, but as U.S. crude exports climb, long-haul exports to China just don't. U.S. shipments to China have averaged around the same amount from 2021 to present, even through the first three months of this year, suggesting that even though the U.S. is pushing more resources out to the world as a whole, Russia is doing an excellent job of servicing China's hydrocarbon demand. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out, as Russia is far closer and friendlier with China than the U.S. could ever dream of being. Unfortunately, we will not be certain of how much more oil China is consuming from Russia, because lots of it is transported by private companies that operate outside of Western markets and just will not reveal that data. Although VLCCs, Swayzmaxes, and Aframaxes can all find reason to complain, they're all just getting greedy because the companies owning these ships are making 10 times more in Q4 of 2022 than they were a year prior. Some companies were even losing money in Q4 of 2021. So these are the best earnings for many oil shipping companies since the 2008 financial crisis. Demand for all ships is high, and you would best remember that this is the case because demand for imported oil makes it so. Folks, that's all we have for today's podcast. I hope you had a good time. If you're hungry for more, go check out www.rarepetro.com, like I'd mentioned a couple times before. If that's not our content that you find, we have other pages that direct you to some of our favorite data and agencies that put out a lot of the information that we consume on our own time. I mean, even outside of working hours, we'll send this stuff back and forth. It's a great day to learn a little more, and we hope you choose to do it with us. This has been Tavis Killian with Rare Petro. Till we see you next time, take care, everybody. 